Well, shalom. Oh, you know what? It's been a while since we were here, so I can tell you not in practice. So we're going to try that one more time, okay? Are you ready? Shalom. Shalom. That's a lot better. Now I feel right at home. Anyway, it's good to be here again this morning. Um, you know, when I, was a believer, when I became a believer in Yeshua, everything changed for me. The lights went on. Life became one new discovery after another as I studied God's word, realized the depth of his love for me. And one of the most unexpected discoveries that I made was how my own Jewish holidays now revealed my Messiah to me. As a new believer in Jesus 43 years ago, I discovered that the Jewish holidays had far greater significance than I had ever imagined. Now, these biblical festivals occupy an important place in God's revelation, for they point to God's plan of redemption, not just for my Jewish people, but for the entire world. And they're relevant not just for my Jewish people, but for the body of Christ as well. The holidays help us to see a holy God and his requirement for sacrifice and covering of sin. And in them, we see none other than Yeshua, who called us into fellowship with God, making it possible for us to fulfill God's righteous demands by putting our trust in him. Now, Yeshua, by shedding his blood, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, as the prophets foretold, made it possible for both Jews and Gentiles to enter into a relationship with God. And we can deeply appreciate that relationship as it's been real, revealed in the Old Testament. And we can also see how exacting, how careful our Jewish people had to be as we approached the holy God. Now, my people still celebrate the Jewish festivals today, though I believe that their significance is lost on the great majority, as I, I mentioned a few minutes ago for myself. We'll discover that the way that these festivals are celebrated today has changed radically since biblical times. <clears throat> and too often, the message that God wants my people to hear clearly through the festivals has been obscured. The biblical festivals find their fulfillment in Yeshua, or Jesus, as he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that all my people have ever hoped for. Now, it's my hope this morning that you'll understand this intimate relationship of promise and fulfillment as we look at the fall festivals. The festivals are going to show us who our Messiah Jesus is, of what he's already done for us, and of what he will do for us in the future. So with this in mind, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is toward the front end of your Bible. I know you look at it all the time, so you shouldn't have any problem finding it, right? <clears throat> now, Leviticus consists almost entirely of laws which were given by God during the stopover of the Israelites um, at Mount Sinai. And a constant emphasis throughout this book is the idea of us being different from the rest of the world. As a people, God called us to be holy. And holy, of course, means to be separate. We're of the world, but we don't have to be a part in the world, but we don't have to be a part of the world, right? 
And I remember um, when I was uh, a new believer in Jesus, one verse that I memorized, memorized back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, which is repeated over and over again. And that's, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. And that's so important to us. So how can sinful man be made just in the sight of a holy God? Well, I think we'll find that out as we go through the message this morning. The Bible presents Israel as a nation set apart from others for God's special purposes. Even the way my ancestors kept track of time was different. Um, the feasts were sprinkled throughout the year, and they were designed to keep our focus on the Lord, on his mighty deeds on our behalf, and on our purpose as his people. And the instructions for these special times are outlined in outline particular in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. So let's begin by looking at the biblical instructions for the festivals. <clears throat> Follow along with me as I read verse 1 and 2 here. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And the Hebrew word, which is moed, it's translated appointed times in our scriptures, is a time to stop everything we're doing and to focus our attention on God. <clears throat> now, what I want to do is I want to give a, a brief overview of Leviticus chapter 23, the feasts. The first of these appointed times is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, and that's in verse 3. It's a weekly reminder of God's creation of the world and his covenant with Israel. Then the rest of the festivals actually fall into two categories. The first category are the spring feasts, uh, and those are related to Passover, and those are in the first part of the ch chapter, verses 4 to 22. And I'll mention them briefly. Passover the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Day of Pentecost. <clears throat> and these festivals depict the beautiful story of God's redemption of his people. First from slavery in Egypt, God's provision for them in the wilderness, and his faithfulness to them as well. And while these are very important, our attention today is on the fall festivals, the second group. And the fall festivals are observed during the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, the month of Tishri. And these are recorded in verses 23 to 44. And that's the focus of our attention today. So let's look at this right now. I'm going to read verse 23 to 34, and then verses 40 to 43 for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So beginning in verse 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
on exactly the 10th day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble yourself, your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Neither shall you do any work on the same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the, day, uh, before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on the same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on the same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statue throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. And uh, verse 33. <clears throat> Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, On the 15th of this month, seventh month, is a feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. And then continuing in verses 40 to 43. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it on a feast, as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out, of the land, out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, of God, the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Now, when you say some rather unusual instructions, so what does this all mean for us? I know you're probably thinking, well, that was back then. That was back in the book of Leviticus. That was 3,000 years ago. I'm a believer in Jesus. In 2018, what does it mean for me, right? I can't imagine there isn't anybody thinking that, right? <clears throat> well, I believe <clears throat> that what I find in these scriptures, I'm going to take a sip of water, is a natural progression of thought, a progression that we would do well to keep in mind. We have the three fall festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which teaches repentance, the Day of Atonement, that teaches us redemption, and the Feast of Tabernacles, that teaches us rejoicing. So what we learn through this 15-day period is the fact that it's necessary for repentance and redemption to take place in order for us to experience rejoicing. Only when we know we've been forgiven can we really rejoice. In this cluster of festivals, of appointed times, I believe that we see nothing less than the gospel, the good news of salvation. So let's take a closer look right now. The first of these festivals 
in the holy month of Tishri is what's called the Feast of Trumpets. As we just saw, those instructions were given in verses 23 to 25. Now, there's a Hebrew name for this festival. It's called Yom Truah, which actually means the day of blowing. That sounds like a strange name for a festival, right? Well, God wanted to commemorate the beginning of the seventh month. He said, don't just stop what you're doing, but to blast a trumpet to get everybody's attention. Now, <clears throat> blowing a trumpet was not that unusual. In fact, very often silver trumpets were used at the very beginning of each month to summon, to sound out the beginning of the month. And these trumpets made melodic, sweet sounds. But the trumpet that's mentioned here in the beginning of the seventh month is a bit different. The word trumpet in verse 24 in Hebrew is actually shofar. And it's a special trumpet. It's not a silver trumpet. But what it is, it's a ram's horn. Okay, and I brought one up with me. And as you can tell, it's a bit different than a silver trumpet, right? And if you ever heard it, you would say it's anything but sweet, anything but melodic. In fact, <clears throat> I believe the rabbis correctly understood the fact that the shofar blast was to call people to repentance. It was a wake-up call, God's alarm clock going off, if you will. And up to the present day, the central aspect of the festival is the blowing of the shofar. It's something that I look forward to hearing every year. And since it's difficult to describe the sound, I'm going to give it a shot right now, and I'm going to blow this for you. Please pray for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Now, hallelujah, <clears throat> you can tell it's not quite like a nice silvery trumpet. And it's possible that the shofar also was a reminder of a story that we read even today in traditional synagogue services during Yom Teruah. And that's the story of the Akedah in Genesis chapter 22. The Akedah means the binding. It's the story of the binding of Isaac. We remember the story. God tested Abraham's obedience by requiring him to sacrifice his only begotten son that God recognized. Remember, he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Okay, now remember, Hagar had a son with, with Abraham, Ishmael. But that wasn't the, the child of promise that God had promised to Sarah and Abraham. Isaac was the child of promise. So he gives him these instructions. Go up to Mount Moriah. Sacrifice Isaac there. And Abraham obeyed God's command, which seemed to defy reason. And he did so because he knew that God could do just about the impossible, even to raise the dead, if that had to be. Thus he became a classic model of faith. Now, you might be wondering, what's the connection to the shofar, right? Well, at the last moment, when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, do you remember what happened? God stopped him. The angel of the Lord came to him and told him, stop. And instead, what did God do? 
God provided a ram caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. In Jewish tradition, this connection with the binding of Isaac is emphasized, and this passage of scripture is read, as I said, every year. Now, <clears throat> the rabbis believe that we Jewish people can appeal to God on the basis of the faithfulness of Abraham and our patriarchs, that their righteousness was actually enough to cover us. However, I am truly convinced that the rabbis are mistaken on that point, that they sadly miss the true significance of this event in the lives of the patriarchs. As we reflect upon God's mercy in substituting a ram for Isaac, we see a beautiful foreshadowing of the substitutionary sacrifice of Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Like Abraham, God was willing to offer up his only son. However, unlike Abraham, he was not only willing, but he did it. He offered his son Yeshua to pay for us all. Though he had no sin, he paid the penalty for sin for us. It's because of his righteousness that through faith, we can have God's righteousness imparted to us. Now, before I move on to the next festival, I want to just mention a bit more about the modern Jewish observance of the Feast of Trumpets. First, I need to let you know that Jewish people today celebrate this festival actually by a different name. They call it Rosh Hashanah. Now, how many of you know somebody who's Jewish? Sure, I would expect so. Well, if you know anything about the, your friends, you know Rosh Hashanah is also equated as the Jewish New Year. But think about it for a minute. What New Year happens in the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, right? Well, you might ask yourself, well, when, when did that start? When, how did that come about? Guess what? We scratch our heads and we say, we don't know either. But like Tevye said in Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, you know. So we don't know. But we do know that at Rosh Hashanah, there are a few things that we do. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of solemn introspection. And one of the things that Jewish people traditionally do is we eat sweet things like apples dipped in honey, apple slices, or we have honey cake. My wife loves to make lots of honey cake. And uh, it's a sweet reminder that we want a sweet year in the year ahead. And as we've seen, the Feast of Trumpets takes place just 10 days prior to the Day of Atonement. And in Jewish tradition, the primary purpose of the Feast of Trumpets is to prepare for the Day of Atonement. According to Jewish tradition, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the 10 days of judgment, when all humanity must pass before the Creator. The righteous are written into the Book of Life. The wicked are condemned, and those who are not wholly righteous nor wholly wicked are given 10 days to repent and thus to escape judgment. So this 10-day period, we call it the days of awe, when we're in awe of God and we're considering how to repent before him. Now, during this 10-day period, Jewish people try to tip the balance in their favor to ensure that they would be written into the book of life for a good year through their good works. 
mending broken relationships, giving to charity, long confessions of sin. The customary Rosh Hashanah greeting given is Lashana Tovatikatevu, which means may your name be inscribed for another year. Okay, so the book of life, that's the hope. And for those of us who know Yeshua, Jesus, we should have no fear of God's destiny for us, for we have been, we have been written into the Lamb's book of life forever. We look with joy for his return when he will come with the trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel to bring in uh, the Shabbat rest for all of eternity. As it reads in 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And as we've seen, the Bible tells us that the Day of Atonement was to come 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets in verse 26. And the biblical name for this festival is Yom HaKippurim or Yom Kippur. And if you've ever seen any uh, practicing Orthodox Jewish people, maybe you know some, they wear a head covering. It's called a kippah. And the root from the word kippah is where Kippur comes from. So what would the Yom Kippur mean? The day of covering. But the question is a covering of what? It's a covering of our sins by the blood that our sins are covered. <clears throat> so that's the purpose of the festival. And that's the heart of the gospel in the Old Testament. Now scripture tells us that special sacrifices were to be observed during Yom Kippur. These sacrifices, along with the prescribed ritual for the festival, are described actually in Leviticus chapter 16. That's for your study later on. This was the one day of the year that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with blood, first for himself, sacrificed, the blood of bulls and goats and calves, and then he would bring in a sacrifice for all the people of Israel. For according to scripture, there is only one way to atone for sin, one way for the sinner to be reconciled to God, and that's through the shedding of blood, as we read in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which says, for the life of a creature is in the flesh, and I have given it to, given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's a blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. So it's the blood that brings about atonement for sins. The focus of the biblical Yom Kippur service and celebration was two goats back in biblical times. One was offered up by the high priest as a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then the other one, which we could call the scapegoat, the Azazel was then brought forward and the priest ceremonially placed his hands on the head of the goat, placing the sins of the people on that goat. And then it was brought out into the wilderness, miles from Jerusalem, miles from the camp, if you will, with the, the sin of the people ceremonially placed on that goat with a scarlet thread tied to them. And according to tradition, 
if we go out and that scarlet thread would turn white. Okay, very good. And it's believed that this symbolized the promise of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. But interestingly enough, according to the Mishnah, which is part of the oral traditions of the Jewish people, the sash stopped turning white for the 40 years before the destruction of the temple. And that, of course, was the approximate year when the Messiah died on the cross and following that. So to this day, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There are no animal sacrifices. There is no more mercy seat. My Jewish people must rely solely on verbal repentance, which our rabbis actually call the calves of our lips for forgiveness of sins. So they believe that the prayers are the sacrifice themselves. And in spite of Yom Kippur, a day dedicated to atonement, there is no assurance on the part of my people that their prayers for forgiveness have been heard nor answered. There's a longing, there's a hope, but there's no assurance. And so we learn from Leviticus 17.11 that atonement is found only in the blood of the sacrifice offered upon the altar and at the ark. However, when Jesus offered up his own blood as an atonement on the cross, he did make atonement for us. And there are two graphic events that confirm the acceptance of his sacrifice for us. The first was that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, like we sang the song before. The veil was torn. God demonstrated in a very dramatic way that he had opened up the way into his intimate presence in the Holy of Holies for us to enter in. Second, the earth shook, the rocks broke, the dead came out of their graves in Jerusalem. It was a testimony to the messianic power on earth and demonstration that the kingdom of God had indeed come. So a great and final day of atonement for the Jewish people is promised by the prophet Zechariah from our forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. A final day of atonement for the Jewish people is promised by the prophet Isaiah, uh, Zechariah. And all of Israel will mourn for the Messiah, the pierced one of Israel. They shall all know his atonement. And I'd like you to turn with me for a minute to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's toward the back of the Old Testament. And I'm going to read that for you. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Can we read? And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. 
And then in chapter 13, verse 1, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So with the destruction of the temple, there was no proper place to offer up sacrifices. So our rabbis decided that until the temple was rebuilt, that fasting, prayer, the doing of good works would somehow have to suffice as it was the best that could be done under the circumstances without the temple. Today, Yom Kippur is considered the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day in which our people fast all day long and implore God for forgiveness, but without any assurance that they have it. The rabbis have actually minimized the need for the shedding of the blood of a, of a substitute and the need for sacrifice to cover sin. And it's disregarded by the majority of our people. So if you try to talk to a Jewish person today about sacrifice, they're going to say, that seems, seems wrong, it seems inhumane and all of that, especially here in the Bay Area, right? Um, you know, you would get the same thing. Well, let's once again consider the elements of the biblical Yom Kippur observance. A bloody sacrifice to atone for sin and a sacrifice that takes sins away. These sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus were temporary measures. They were token sacrifices made year after year after year. But what did they do? They pointed us to the one true sacrifice, the one we call Yeshua, the one who would enter into heaven itself to appear before God for us, that priest and that very sacrifice. So on what basis did he enter into the presence of God? Well, while the Jewish high priest entered symbolically every year by means of the blood of others, of bulls and goats, so Yeshua entered into heaven itself by his own blood as a sacrifice for us all. Now, the last festival that I want to talk about this morning is the Feast of Tabernacles, which begins five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And if you're looking at Leviticus 23, it starts in verse 33 and it continues to the end of the chapter. Now, the people were instruct instructed to do a few things. First, they were instructed to rejoice in the presence of the Lord for seven days in verse 40. Then second, during this time of rejoicing, they were to live in booths for seven days. Now, the Hebrew word for booths is Sukkot. And I remember when I was growing up as a boy in New York, I used to go to synagogue and during the Feast of, of Tabernacles, we would have our services and then at the end of the service, we would go up to the rooftop of the synagogue where the men of our congregation had built a really large sukkah. And we'd have what we call a time of schmoozing and noshing in there. <clears throat> and the schmoozing was chattering, talking with each other. And do you know what noshing is? Everybody knows what noshing is. It's eating, of course, right? And we used to do that because it was a way of rejoicing for all that God had done for us, even in the midst of uh, that tabernacle, that sukkah. And also, it was a reminder to us of how God had commanded us 
to dwell in Booth for seven days each year to remind us of how our ancestors had dwelled in Booths during that 70 year, uh, that 40 year period when they wandered in the wilderness. We remembered how God tabernacled amongst us for that 40 years. Now, even as the sun is setting on the Day of Atonement, there are people that begin to build a sukkah right outside on their back, back, you know, in their backyard or in their, you know, on their front yard or whatever, in the grass, building their sukkah. And, you know, you might, if you live near any Jewish people that build the sukkah today, you might even see TV antennas sticking out through the roof. You know, we're modern, of course, so, you know, it's not like for the 40 years in the wilderness. We can watch TV these days. Anyway, well, Jewish tradition describes a major ceremony of Sukkot in the time of Jesus. It's called the water drawing ceremony. Now, if you can picture this, a procession of worshipers followed by the high priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam in the city of David. They filled a special golden pitcher with water. And then following that, the crowd would return up to the temple where the priest would pour the water that he had drawn from the Pool of Siloam into large basins. And why did they go through the trouble? Well, it was to remind the people of the value of the rain that was needed, the water that was needed for the crops for the following year. And it's believed, in fact, that Jesus, when he made this declaration, it might have been at that time, where he says in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. The apostle John tells us that he was speaking prophetically of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the invitation was not only for those who merely thirsted for water, but to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And his hearts pant after God like a deer pants for the water. Now, we can see at least a couple of other ways that Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles. In the prologue of John's Gospel, in the first chapter, you remember that it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 16, right? Well, this word, or 14, this word dwelt literally means he tabernacled amongst us. Sounds familiar? Just like the Feast of Tabernacles. Just as God dwelt in the midst of his people during that 40 years in the wilderness, the tent of meeting, he tabernacled. So Jesus tabernacled amongst his people 2,000 years ago. He dwelt among us in the form of a man. And then, if you think about it, even today, he still tabernacles amongst those of us who know him in human flesh. He lives within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? So just amazing how God wants to dwell in the midst of his people and inside of us. So as I conclude, I want to sum up our focus for this morning. We read some biblical instructions that were given for three festivals, 
that were to take place in the seventh month. <clears throat> These festivals are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So as we've seen, they're celebrated by Jewish people all over the world, though for the great majority, I think the meaning is really lost. But as believers in Yeshua, I think we have a good understanding today. So contrast all of this, you know, for instance, in Judaism, there is no assurance of God's forgiveness. There's an illustration in the story of a famous rabbi. <clears throat> the rabbi's name is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and it's believed he's the father of rabbinic Judaism today. As he lay on his deathbed, his disciples came to visit him. And I'm going to read from the biblical account what he said. When he saw them, he began to weep. His disciples said to him, Lamp of Israel, pillar of the right hand, mighty hammer. Wherefore weepest thou? He replied, When there are two ways before me, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna, and I do not know by which I shall be taken, shall I not weep? In other words, even this famous rabbi, Yochanan ben Zakkai, didn't know where he was going when he died. Contrast that with those of a far greater Jewish sage. This man knew that although repentance is vital to salvation, repentance alone can never save anybody. His words are found among other places in the book of Romans. His name, the Apostle Shaul, Paul. He wrote these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we praise and we thank you that we could look at these festivals today and remember how you have shown us your plan of redemption. You have shown us your plan of uh, salvation. You've shown us our future, Lord, our rejoicing in you. We praise you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who's not yet trusted in you, that they would turn to you even this day. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen.